0: Today's reflection is from The Body by Bill Bryson. Our bodies are a universe of 37.2 trillion cells operating in more or less perfect concert, more or less all of the time. An ache, a twinge of indigestion, an odd bruise or pimple are about all in the normal course of things that announces our imperfectibility. There are thousands of things that can kill us. Slightly more than 8,000 according to the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems compiled by the World Health Organization, and we escape every one of them but one. For most of us, that's not a bad deal. We are not perfect by any means, goodness knows. We get impacted molars because we have evolved jaws too small to accommodate all the teeth we are endowed with. We have pelvises too small to pass children without excruciating pain. We are hopelessly susceptible to backache. We have organs that mostly cannot repair themselves. If a zebrafish damages its heart, it grows new tissue. If you damage your heart, well, too bad. Nearly all, the animals, nearly all animals produce their own vitamin C, but we can't. We undertake every part of the process except inexplicably the last step, the production of a single enzyme the miracle of human life is not that we are endowed with some frailties, but they are that, but that we aren't swamped with them. Don't forget that your genes come from ancestors who most of the time weren't even human. Some of them were fish. Lots more were tiny and furry and lived in burrows. These are the beings from whom you have inherited your body plan. You are the product of 3 billion years of evolutionary tweaks We would all be a lot better off if we could just start fresh and give ourselves bodies built for our particular homo sapien needs, to walk upright without wrecking our knees and backs, to swallow without heightened risk of choking, to dispense babies as if from a vending machine. But we weren't built for that. We began our journey through history as unicellular blobs floating about in warm, shallow seas. Everything since then has been a long and interesting accident but a pretty glorious one too. Well, good morning, everybody. I've been thinking about this talk for some time, but the final push came when I received an email from the mom of a seventh grade student I was teaching when I was a long-term science sub at Brambleton Middle School. For now, I'll call her Mike's mom. She asked, when are you teaching the theory of creationism? In the spirit of the summit series topic transitions, I can say that I came to an important realization about myself and that today is a coming out of sorts. My religious background is complicated. I am the son of a Roman Catholic mother and a Jewish father. After marrying my mother, my father was disowned by his family because he married outside the faith. I was raised Catholic, but after my confirmation, I never attended church. In fact, my family, in my family organized religion was generally thought of as exclusive and even destructive. In the early years, neither of my children grew up practicing a religion. Uh, Although both my wife and I were raised Catholic, we did not want to inflict that on the kids. My son was baptized at the insistence of my mother-in-law, but my daughter was not. Both kids uh, attended what was billed as a non-denominational religious study in a church right across the street from their elementary school. One day, my daughter came home in tears. She was told by the teacher that if she died, her soul would go to hell because she had not been baptized. We realized that some sort of less harrowing education was in order. We decided to find a church. The UU Society of Auburn was less than two blocks from our house and seemed like a good place to start. It was a faith I could live with because there's no gospel, no threats of heaven and hell, and it seemed to be accepting of all beliefs. Before I go further, a couple definitions are in order. What do I mean by belief? Merriam Webster defines belief as a state or habit of mind in which trust or confidence is placed in some person or thing. I see belief as an idea you hold to be true, something you're confident in. I think of faith as belief plus action. One may believe in God, but one's faith propels them to church. A definition of faith that I particularly like. I found in a book by Jerry Coyne, Faith Versus Fact. He says, faith is belief with little or no evidence. For now, for the rest of my talk, I will use both terms somewhat interchangeably. I'm a science guy. I'm not credentialed and certainly not of the caliber of the science guy, Bill Nye. Yet I still love to read and think about science issues. I attended college as a biology major Unfortunately, I'm math challenge and cannot get through calculus. So I switched majors to American Studies and then attended law school. But my love of science never waned. Given the choice between belief without evidence and science, I will pick science every time. When science and belief collide, I come down on the side of science. Getting back to Mike's mom. I worked in the Loudoun County school system for a dozen years first as a teacher assistant, and then as a substitute teacher. I held four long-term subpositions as a science teacher. All told, I taught an entire year of seventh grade science. One of my favorite units was on the theory of evolution and the science scientific proof for it. The topic includes understanding genetics, geology, archeology, span earth history, and chemistry. Each week I wrote to parents letting them know the topic we would be covering in the coming week and gave a very general summary of the unit. Mike's mom wrote in reply to that email. My first instinct was to write a long email explaining this was a science class, not a religion class, how creationism was not science, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to really let her have it. I've come to a conclusion that beliefs without evidence are harming us. There's lots of low-hanging fruit to pick from. Let's continue with creationism. I think we all know that a substantial portion of the population accepts the Bible as literally true and propose that the earth is only 10,000 years old, that the ancestors of all humanity are Adam and Eve, and that there was a great flood destroying almost every living thing, that dinosaurs roam the earth with humans, and so on. Well, that's not true starting with Darwin's evolution of the species by natural selection. We learned that over a long time, all life evolved from single cells and that those species best adapted to their environment survived, reproduced, and passed those favorable traits to offspring. In the time since Darwin wrote in the 1800s, scientists have shown almost incontrovertibly through studies of DNA, the fossil record, radioactive carbon dating, anatomical similarities across common ancestors, not to mention direct observation that evolution is correct. This is what I wanted to tell Mike's mom. I wanted to tell her that a theory in science is not a random guess or a hunch, but an explanation of the natural world confirmed by observation, repeated testing, and prediction. I wanted to tell her that her religious belief about the origin of life was not a provable theory. Instead, I gave her pablum. I told her that the Virginia standards of learning dictate what is taught, and if she wanted creationism taught, she needed to talk to her school board representative. So what's the big deal if Mike and and his mom believe in creationism? What's the harm? If it were only Mike, I would not be overly concerned. The harm is that little Mikes grow up to be our leaders. Mike Pompeo, our Secretary of State and Evangelical, draws on the Book of Revelations, and references end times in conducting foreign policy. Vice President Mike Pence, a conservative Catholic, and Pompeo, along with other White House officials, attend End Times Bible Study Group, which informs U.S. foreign and domestic policy. The Washington Post reported November 18, 2019, that the Ohio legislature passed a law that claim, that critics claim, allows students to answer questions wrong in science class if their reasoning is based on religion. It prohibits teachers from penalizing students based on the religious content of their work on assignments. In Paducah, Kentucky, students read the Gospels in public school classes where they draw pictures of the cross and of Adam and Eve walking with dinosaurs. There's other low-hanging fruit based on religion, some not. A cherry pick prohibition in the Old Testament calls it an abomination if a man lies with a man, and they should be put to death. Today we discriminate, beat, and even kill people because of their sexuality. Leviticus contains a long list of prohibitions, but I'll bet no one has ever been beaten for wearing two types of cloth in a garment or for having a tattoo. Other low hanging fruit, refusal to get vaccinations. The science is clear, vaccines save lives. Yet there are many who simply won't. It doesn't arise from a religious belief either, just an unjustified belief that vaccines cause harm, contrary to all the science. What are the typical excuses? Eh, it's my body. It's my child, I'll raise him how I want. Vaccines cause autism. The last one is supposedly rooted in science, the 1998 study by a British scientist, Andrew Wakefield, which was thoroughly discredited, discredited as fraudulent. Wakefield lost his li- license to practice. Yet many still com- believe this conclusion in spite of all the science to the contrary. Some couch it as religious belief, which is very hard to comprehend since no major religion that I'm aware of prohibits vaccines. The closest I could come to religious reason to reject vaccines is that some vaccines are derived from fetal tissue aborted decades ago. Inexplicably, many states have created a religious exemption to getting vaccines and attending public school. Kate Cohen asked the critical question in a Washington Post op-ed entitled What's So Special About Religious Belief? She asked, why should religion exempt people from civil rights legislation and public health law? It doesn't seem right, she says. She answered her question with a spot on observation. Unlike parenting philosophy or political views, religious tenets can't change over time. Religious law is rigid, so civil law must bend. More low hanging fruit, climate change. Despite all the science to the contrary, that human activity is causing climate change, we have our president saying, and this is a quote from the Wall Street Journal, I don't believe in climate change. The belief held by many political and religious conservatives is killing the planet. The coronavirus pandemic has shown that vast numbers of people simply distrust or disbelieve science. It will magically go away, according to you-know-who. The Washington Washington Post reported in July on the spread of coronavirus in Florida. As the virus spread out of control in Florida, decision-making became increasingly shaped by politics and divorced from scientific evidence. Then there are the individual tragedies. In June, a 17-year-old immunocompromised young woman died of COVID after attending a church party with 100 other children. She did not wear a mask, and there was no social distancing. Worse, her parents delayed taking her to a hospital and instead gave her hydroxychloroquine. A recent poll found 44% of Republicans believe that Bill Gates will use the coronavirus vaccine to inject tracking chips in people. We still make things up that we don't understand. We don't call them myths anymore. We now call them conspiracy theories. There are many more examples, and I'm sure you probably can think of many of your own, but I don't have the time. I want to turn briefly to fruit higher up in the tree. Belief's more difficult for me to grapple with, and that's our first principle. Of the seven principles, one, the seventh, is is rooted in science. You use, promote, respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Neil deGrasse Tyson informs us in his book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, that the four most chemically active elements in the universe, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen, are the four most common elements of all life on Earth. He states, we simply do not live in this universe. The universe lives within us. If you've ever studied food chains and food webs, you know how all life is interconnected. The principle that gives me pause though is the first, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. The UUA website explains the first principle as follows. Reverence and respect for human nature is at the core of Unitarian Universalist faith. We believe that all the dimensions of our being carry the potential to do good. It sounds right, it feels good. We empathize with the first principle but I also think there's a certain amount of confirmation bias. The idea that we pay attention to concepts and ideas that already confirm our beliefs and ignore what we don't like, it sounds self-evident, like all people are created equal. Reverend Phyllis gave a sermon years ago on the first principle and used it as, as an example, Adolf Hitler. She voiced her own doubts, but Hitler is almost too easy, too long dead and theoretical. Let's instead focus on a few people still with us or recently dead. Donald Trump is a man of immense wealth and power. He could have used it for good. Here's an apt description of Trump from a recent article in The Atlantic written by Peter Werner entitled, Trump is a broken man. The fact that he is devoid of any moral sensibilities or admirable human qualities, self-discipline, compassion, empathy, responsibility, courage, honesty, loyalty, prudence, temperance, a desire for justice. Means he has no internal moral clock. The question, is this the right thing to do, never enters his mind. As a result, he not only nurses his grievances, he acts on them. He lives to exact revenge, to watch his opponents suffer, to inflict pain on those who don't bend before him. Even former war heroes who have died can't escape his wrath. I have great difficulty believing that he is worthy of dignity or respect or that he has the potential to do good. Here are some other names. Adam Lanza, Aaron Alexis, Devin Kelly, Omar Mir Sadiqe Mateen, Robert Bowers, Dwayne Craddock, Patrick Crucius, Nicholas Cruz, Stephen Paddock. James Holmes. I think you know some of these names. Each one is responsible for the mass murder of between 10 and 50 men, women, and children in the last 15 years or so. In some cases, they were motivated by hatred. In other cases, not motivated by anything in particular. The list, unfortunately, would be way too long to include others who kill fewer than 10. I find it difficult, if not impossible, to recognize the inherent worth or dignity of any of them. I struggle with the first principle. I wonder if this principle leads us to make decisions that are not in our best interest. Is it merely aspirational? Is it something to make me a better person? I see social, a social science experiment here, or at least another sermon. Some of you may be saying, Alan, why are you, aren't you are you just substituting a science science as a belief system in place of religious belief? After all, Neil deGrasse Tyson is famously quoted as saying, the good thing about science is that it's true, whether or not you believe it. He seems to imply that you can believe in science or not. I don't think you'll find many scientists, though, who believe in science. They will accept science, and for some very good reasons. Science prizes doubt. Science relies on testing, tests that can be reproduced by others. And science, unlike religious belief, is willing to be wrong. My acceptance of science is based on the rational search for truth. Why am I a member of the UUCL? Well, the long answer lies in a sermon I gave once. The short answer lies in the first two sentences of our covenant. Love is the spirit of this church. Love I take to mean caring for each other, our community, and our planet. The second sentence, the quest for truth, is its sacrament. A sacrament meaning a solemn promise to seek truth, which I interpret as a rational, informed search. I've come to understand that my worldview best fits with secular humanism. It means my belief or non-belief in a God or supernatural power is not significant or uh, or an important part of my life. I treasure truth, and the search for truth must be based on evidence and not on faith. I realize that I can be ethical, just and fair, respectful to, of others, and tolerant without holy books. I can still be in awe of a beautiful sunset without invoking a higher power. I have one other idea I want to leave you with. We, you use, believe that we welcome everyone one's sexuality, the color of their skin the socioeconomic background, country of origin, or former religious background is of no consequence here. But I submit there are two groups to whom we are less than welcoming, the non-believers and our Jewish members and friends. Now, I know somebody's thinking, of course, non-believers are welcome. Of course, we treasure our Jewish members. But our name belies the intention. By calling ourselves a church, We make ourselves less inviting to those who are not believers. And our Jewish members, friends, and potential friends must reconcile and rationalize attending a church. It is far different for one who identifies as a lapsed Catholic or a former Methodist to attend a church than it is for someone whose identity is bound up in Judaism. In this time of name-changing, perhaps it is time for us to reconsider our name. May it be so.